Thank you, Duncan, and good evening, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Uh, before we get underway, uh, I have been uh, instructed to make an announcement on behalf of the technical team. They want to make it clear that they had nothing, I repeat, nothing to do with the slides that appeared uh, while Duncan was giving his overview. Truth is, though, I lashed them up this lunchtime. I clearly learned my graphic design skills back in the 1970s while working for the Soviet Interior Ministry. Um, thank you to Beth and the panel uh, for a very insightful uh, conversation. I have to say, when Aaron was talking about giving his uh, younger, going back in a time machine and giving his younger self some advice, I'm afraid my instinctive reaction was much less spiritual. I was thinking I would go back and tell myself to buy Amazon. Um, <clears throat> As a child, I remember being told the story of King Midas and his golden touch. Midas was a wealthy king who loved being wealthy. He spent hours counting all his gold coins. And on one occasion, he showed kindness to a stranger who turned out to be a sort of demigod called Silenus. And in return for his kindness, Silenus awarded the king one wish. Midas demanded, after a lot of thought, that everything he touched would turn to gold. And at first, he was delighted with his newfound power. He ran around the palace, turning tables and rugs and chairs into solid gold. But then he realized his blessing was, in fact, a curse. He tried to eat a grape, and that didn't go well. Then, when he hugged his daughter, she turned into a gold statue. And in despair, Midas cried out to his gods, and they took pity on him. He was told to wash his hands in a particular river. Gold ran out of his hands until he was cleansed of his curse. He returned a wiser and more generous man. And even as a kid, I understood that the story of King Midas was a lesson, a lesson about value, about what's most important in life. Now, I'm going to rephrase my point using religious language. The key question in life is, who or what do you worship? Those of you who study English literature might have encountered a writer called David Foster Wallace. He was an atheist who tragically took his own life back in 2008. And he once said this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. I once read a story about a paramedic who received an anonymous call reporting that a heroin addict was on the verge of death in an abandoned apartment building. And when he arrived on the scene, he found the addict, addict huddled in a corner, shivering and unresponsive. Around him were piles of rotten trash, used syringes, lighters, spoons, the usual paraphernalia of the heroin addict. And the paramedic said the scene was terrifying, but he added that was the first time he fully understood what worship looked like. When I worship something, I am saying that it has ultimate value in my life. It is the ordering principle that regulates and governs my daily life. It is the signal to myself about what my life is finally about. Midas was a materialist. He worshiped wealth. The wish he asked to be granted revealed his core values. What was ultimately important in his life? I wonder 
if the demigods Sylvanus appeared at the foot of your bed tonight and granted you one wish, what would you choose? Your choice would reveal a great deal about your values in life. So for the next few minutes, I want to confront you with a simple question. What do you value most in life? Instinctively, you might run away from that question. You might say it's too hard or too abstract a question to answer. But I will tell you this. The way you live in university over the next three years will answer my question. The choices you make, the priorities you demonstrate in daily life, these things will explain to everyone around you the values that you have. Now, notice I did not say the words you speak or the songs you sing will reveal your values. No. The evidence comes in the way you act and react. Your values get exposed in the thousands of little choices you make in the humdrum routines of life on campus. So what do you value most in life? So let's now turn to God's Word, uh, to the Gospel of John and chapter 12. Before I read this with you, let me set the scene. John's Gospel is divided into two main parts, I would suggest, and the second part focuses on the last week of the Lord Jesus' life on this earth. It records his final journey to Jerusalem, a journey that ends with his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. All of us who live in Northern Ireland know that moment when the clouds darken the sky and the winds start to feel stronger. Sometimes heralds a coming storm. As John records the events of Jesus' final week, we get this sense of a gathering storm. A great conflict lies up ahead. And it's a conflict between, on the one hand, Jesus as king of Israel, and a figure John refers to as the prince of this world. We perhaps know him better as Satan. But John uses the term prince of this world throughout his gospel because the term the world has a special meaning for him. When John talks about the world, he isn't referring to planet Earth. The world in his mind is a value system that has been designed to shut God out. In John's gospel, the world is that thing which tells me that this world is all there is. Life is about accumulating stuff. It's about money and sex and power. All that airy, fairy talk of an unseen kingdom of spiritual realities, that can be thrown away because this present world is all there is. And that system says the Apostle John, is ruled by a prince, a sinister spiritual creature who is determined to insulate us from God, to create a barrier between us and God. He rules over a system which has been designed to tell us that this world is all there is. Life's meaning, its purpose, its significance, and its value will be found within his closed little system. Earlier on in his gospel, John has introduced us to Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Logos, the Son of God who has come from heaven and broken into this world. And his purpose is to blow Satan's little closed system apart, to open up the world of unseen spiritual realities to us. And Christ will accomplish his mission by persuading us that the most valuable things in life are not to be found in physical things. So the battle lines have been drawn. The great conflict between Christ as true king and the prince of this world is underway. So maybe it's not all that surprising now as we turn to John 12, to the beginning of the second part of the book, that it begins with a story about two people with utterly contrasting values. Let's read that story now from John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. 
Then Mary took about a half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now, the artifact at the heart of this story was a most precious heirloom. It was a beautifully carved alabaster box, which was full of the most precious perfume known in the ancient world, a thing called pure nard. I was once told that it was manufactured from herbs that grew at the foot of the Himalayas. And the alabaster box sealed the perfume in. And maybe for generations, it was handed down from mother to daughter, kept safely. It was such a precious thing. Now, it seems to me that Mary, like her sister Martha and brother Lazarus, were all single. Given the insights were given into the relationship, given the fact that Mary was the owner of this heirloom, I think it's safe to deduce that Mary was the eldest of the family. And they lived in a place called Bethany, which was a little village very close to Jerusalem. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were perhaps the best, the most loyal friends that the Lord Jesus had while he was here on earth. Jesus traveled all around the country, preaching and teaching and healing. He was often hounded by the religious leaders of the day. They wanted him dead because they were so full of jealousy and hatred toward him. So our Lord loved to come to Bethany, and he knew that he would always find a real heartfelt welcome in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He knew that Martha would do her best to make him a meal, and Mary and Lazarus would listen and enjoy his company. It's a lovely thing to build a home where Jesus is always welcome. A home where there is harmony and where people aren't embarrassed to talk freely about the Lord and to enjoy his fellowship. I wonder, will the Lord enjoy spending time in your student flat? Make sure he's not the forgotten forgotten guest, never spoken to by a group that clusters around the TV and games console. So the great uh, confrontation between the king and the prince was only a week away. In less than seven days, the Lord Jesus would have been arrested, tried falsely, tortured, crucified, and raised from the dead. And our Lord had spoken to his disciples in recent times about his impending death, but they hadn't understood. And how difficult it must have been for the Lord as he faced this unspeakably difficult uh, future to have no one to confide in, no one who had even the slightest clue what he was going through. But Mary was a good listener. She knew that Jesus was willingly going to his death. And as she sat at his feet and listened, an idea formed in her mind. And quietly she went into the little room where her precious perfume had been hidden away. Uh, Perhaps she unlocked the box it was stored in, unwrapped layers of cloth that protected it. Her fingers must have run over the delicate carving as she remembered how it had been given to her for safekeeping. What was she to do with such a precious thing? When Mary returned to the room, the disciples were astonished as they quickly calculated how much it was worth. 
and a gasp goes around the room. Mary goes over to the Lord and without saying a word, breaks the alabaster box and anoints the Lord with it. She was saying something to him that could not be said with words. She was telling him that she knew. She knew he was willingly going to his death and she was preparing him already for his burial. Above all, she was giving him the most precious gift that she had to tell the Lord Jesus that she loved him. And the aroma from that broken box filled the entire house with the most beautiful scent anyone had experienced. And I wonder if that alabaster box is a metaphor for its owner's life. Not everyone in life experiences the joy of marriage and children. Not every home is littered with children's toys and noise and bustle. Allow me a flight of fancy for a moment. Mary has always struck me a bit like the heroine of that Beatles song, uh, Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. These two sisters and brother were growing old together. No marriage partner, no children, no grandchildren around the house. And maybe Mary took this alabaster box down from the safe cupboard and wondered what was the point of having such a beautiful thing? She wondered if the precious thing inside would ever be used. And I think she was considering her own life a valuable, precious thing. But what was it for? Well, look at her action. What she did with the perfume, she did with her life. Our lives are precious things. Human life is sacred and beautiful. But sometimes we ask ourselves, what is it for? What should I do with this beautiful and precious thing? And one of the greatest gifts of salvation is that in Christ you have someone who is worthy of you, someone worthy of your devotion. You can give him all you have and know that it won't be wasted. I suggest that this story teaches us that Christ is worthy of your devotion. So one answer to the question I posed at the start, what is truly valuable in life, is Mary's answer. Mary's answer is that Christ is so valuable that pouring our lives out in his service is the way we find meaning. Now, in that story, it revealed a contrasting set of values, didn't it? Even a superficial reading of the passage shows that John is deliberately setting up Mary against Judas Iscariot. Above the gasps of horror, as Mary breaks the box, the perfume streams out on the Lord's head. We hear the voice of Judas leading the descent. The box is broken. It's in fragments. The beautiful carving lost. And Judas cries out in horror at such a waste of money. The other gospels record the shock question, why this waste? Like all materialists, Judas reduced a moment of spiritual intimacy to pounds, shillings, and pence. It was this incident that actually triggered Judas's betrayal. Straight away, he went and made arrangements to sell the Lord for money. How much money? We all know, 30 pieces of silver. A lot less than a year's wages. And in the end, when Jesus is dying on the cross, the soldiers only found value in his clothing. Think about that sliding scale of decreasing value from a year's wages to 30 pieces of silver to the price of a set of second-hand clothes. No wonder Isaiah said of Christ, we esteemed him not. I have been involved in student ministry for decades. And I have seen students follow that sliding scale. At first, they seem full of enthusiasm. 
They attend CU events. They get involved perhaps even in evangelism. They often have a passion for social justice, just like Judas had. But over time, it becomes clear that they don't really value Christ. He is not the object of their worship. Other things occupy that position in the heart. And so over the next three years, Christ becomes of less and less value to them. And in the end, he becomes valueless. My challenge to you this evening is to be like Mary at Bethany and not like Judas Iscariot. And the real question, of course, is how do I get to be like Mary? Perhaps you were raised in a Christian home like the, the, the three panel members. Becoming a Christian was a moment that brought huge relief to your parents. And you are, in fact, a true believer. But if you're being honest, you don't yet consider Christ to be of ultimate value in your life. For you, at the moment, that's just words. So how does someone get to the point where they value Christ as Mary did? In Luke chapter 10, we find out something crucial about Mary's relationship with the Lord. Whenever Jesus was teaching, Scripture tells us that Mary was always to be found sitting at his feet, listening intently, learning, as every intelligent Christian woman should learn. Mary had found in Christ not a role model, but the very source of all that is beautiful and good and true. She had come to believe that he had come from heaven. He had broken into this closed world of ours and had revealed himself to be the very source of life. And so she drank in his words, fed off them, was sustained by them. So that's the first step you can take. Sit at Jesus' feet. Make sure you get a weekly diet of good Bible teaching. You cannot realistically claim that Christ is of ultimate importance in your life if you know very little about him. There is a second lesson from Mary's life. There came a moment when she was terribly disappointed in Jesus. As a single woman, the only family she had were her little brother and sister. And one day, her brother Lazarus became gravely ill, and Mary sent desperate messages to Jesus to come and heal Lazarus, but he didn't come. Anxiety gave way to despair when Lazarus breathed his last. Some days later, Jesus arrives at the house. Mary's sister Martha greets the Lord and talks with him, but Mary stays inside the house because she was just too hurt. Surely if Jesus had really loved her, he would have come in time to heal her brother. But then she's told that Christ is asking for her. And so she runs to him and falls at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus looked down at his friend. He was crying uncontrollably, overcome with grief and disappointment. Grief at the loss of her brother and disappointment that Christ in her hour of greatest need had been absent. And in what is the emotional climax of John's gospel, Jesus says nothing. But he weeps with his friend. He stands by Lazarus' tomb and weeps with the bereaved. He does the same today, of course. And Mary learned in those moments that she was loved. The Son of God loved her. And that changes, that is the emotional pivot of the whole book. What I'm about to say is a hard lesson to give to young adults, but there's no getting around it. It takes suffering 
become deeply convinced that you are loved by God. So God, in his wisdom, might call you to go through some really tough experiences. Perhaps he has already done so. There will be times when you feel let down by God. You've cried out for his help, but heaven remains stubbornly silent. Like Mary, you may then doubt that you are, in fact, loved by Jesus. But the glorious testimony of every believer who has suffered is this. There will come a moment when you will know the presence of Christ standing beside you. He may even weep with you. And in that moment, you will know that you are loved by God, fully known and truly loved. That is why Mary of Bethany found Christ to be of supreme value. She had found in him the source of life who sustained her, so she fed her soul by sitting at his feet and drinking in his words. And she had found in him the Son of God who loved her. It was that first-person subjective knowledge of God which convinced her that Christ was of supreme value in her life, and her devotion wasn't wasted. I don't need to tell you that at the end of John's gospel, Mary is one of the women who cry out, he is risen to the other disciples. With this I close. One of the disciples who heard Mary cry out, he is risen, was called Peter. In later life, Peter reflected upon the question of value. The betrayal of Judas Iscariot had a massive impact on Peter. And he remembered him and how his values determined his end. Because you see, Peter had seen the corpse of Judas hanging on the branch of a tree. Like David Foster Wallace, Judas Iscariot committed suicide by hanging himself. And no one buried Judas. And so he hung there until the rope rotted and the decomposed corpse fell headlong down a ravine. That is the fate of those who reduce the value of life to material things. All that's left is a rotting corpse. In his mind, Peter contrasted that value system with the beauty and goodness and truth of Jesus Christ. And he wrote these words, I close with them, and I hope that in your university career you will know them to be true. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray your blessing on every precious young life in this room. Thank you, Lord, that you care for them intimately. You know their longings and their aspirations. You know their fears and their disappointments. You know their mistakes. I pray, Father, that over this time that you have given them, that they would come to value Christ as Mary of Bethany valued him. That they would be able to break out of this materialistic system where life is nothing but money and sex and power and being a, trying to gain the admiration of strangers on, on social media. And instead, find in Jesus Christ the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. And so, Lord, pray that you would help them to feed off your word, to learn from it, to encounter character, the, the, your beautiful character, 
to see the moral grandeur of Christ. And Lord, if it is your will that they have to suffer, pray that they would have wisdom in that suffering and know that you are teaching them that you love them and that you care for them and you're developing them. So we ask your blessing on every high head bowed, young or old, in this gathering, asking that you part us in your fear and with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll hand back to Duncan for a final hymn.